0: Your attention to Titus chapter three this morning. We are in week forty of reading through the uh, New Testament, preaching through the New Testament. <clears throat> it's good to see you. Missed you the last two weeks. We uh, took some time off, went down to the Yucatan and enjoyed a couple of beautiful hurricanes. And it's uh, it's good to be back. Well, just as he had done for uh, for other churches and leaders, Paul wrote a letter to instruct Titus. Titus was the leader of the churches in Crete, on the Isle of Crete, and Paul wrote a letter regarding what he should do and teach. And a common element, you've seen this as we've read through, a common element of Paul's letters was to remind these churches and new believers of their obligations and and the standards of behavior as they lived in very uh, pagan cultures. Look with me now in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, it's a pretty simple list. It's self-explanatory. You could sum it up with that phrase, be ready for every good work, and then clarify it with the list that he gives there. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarrels, being gentle, showing perfect courtesy toward all people. But what about that very first item? Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient. What what exactly is encapsulated in the command to be submissive to rulers and authorities and, and to be obedient? What about ungodly rulers and authorities? Is there ever a time that we should not be obedient or not be subject to those who are over us? What about our responsibility to those rulers and and to the government? What what does a good citizen (coughs) look like for the Christian? What does it mean to be a good citizen? Now, those are certainly apropos questions for our day, don't you think? It doesn't seem like Paul has has said enough here, does it? He just says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. He doesn't unpack that in, in any way. But you notice he begins with the word, Remind, and and literally, it's to remind and keep on reminding. In other words, Paul is saying, what I'm saying to you is so important, you need to continually keep it before the people, but the word remind also means that Paul had previously taught them, if we're just reminding of what's already been said. So let's take a quick look this morning at what the scripture says about government and about our responsibility as believers. What did Paul know from the life of the Lord? What did Paul know from the scriptures? What had the Holy Spirit of God inspired Paul to write to the churches that he wrote to? Well, if you go back to Romans chapter 13, and you don't have to turn there, you may choose to this morning, but Romans 13, 1 through 7 is a pretty comprehensive explanation from Paul about government and citizens. And there are are four clear things he says in Romans 13, 1 through 7. The first very simply is this everyone should submit to governing authorities because those authorities are established by God. He doesn't define good authority, bad authority, helpful authority. He doesn't say that. He says we all are to submit to governing authorities because they're established by God. And then the second point in Romans 13 is very simply, if you rebel against authority, you're rebelling against God. The third thing he mentions in Romans 13 is not about the citizens but about the government. He says the authorities are to be servants to do good for us. They're to commend those in society who do good. They're to punish those who do wrong. But the authorities are there as servants. And then the last thing he says in Romans 13, and I guess it's good I'm not preaching this message in mid-April, he says we're to pay taxes. We're to support our government. But if you go look, he says not only, we're to, we, not only do we owe taxes, he says, as far as government authorities, we owe them respect and honor. And you see the same word Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 and 14, basically the same thing that Paul has said. So what you see in Romans 13 is Paul is speaking about the responsibility of citizens to government, but also the responsibility of government to citizens, he says about government leaders that they are to serve. And, and Jesus, more than anyone, modeled that, didn't he? You remember in Matthew 20, when Jesus was speaking to the disciples, he said, Guys, look, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, not so with you. He said, if you want to be great, you need to be the what? Servant of all. And Jesus, even speaking about himself, said, Look, the Son of Man did not come to be served. Did the Son of Man have the right to be served? Oh, absolutely. He was God himself, King of kings, Lord and lords, Almighty God of the universe. And he came down, but he didn't come for all the world to serve him. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The role of authorities is to serve those whom they govern. Now, granted, and we see this all over the world, there, there are many nations where authorities become horribly oppressive. And even in nations where authorities are not horribly oppressive, authorities sometimes forget that their role is to serve, that they are servants of the people, and instead they become self-serving instead of serving the people. But guess what? Even if we live in a nation like that, we're not excused at that point. Even if an authority is oppressive or even if authority is is self-serving, we still are to live in obedience. In 1 Peter 2, Verses 18 and 19, Peter writes these words, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Scripture doesn't relieve us of the responsibility to submit to, to honor, to respect leaders, regardless of what the leaders are doing or how they're behaving. It's interesting, though, when you really look at the total picture of Scripture, it's about more than just submission and obedience. If you look through the picture of Scripture, it also reveals that we're not only to be submissive and obedient, we're to be a blessing to our culture and to our government. You remember the story of Joseph? Joseph was sold into slavery. Joseph was unjustly treated. Joseph was accused, put into prison. But in every part of Joseph's life, he was a blessing, and he ended up influencing the nation of Egypt for good. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They refused to uh, bow, and they were able to influence for good. Daniel influenced Babylon for good. Mordecai, Esther, Nehemiah all influenced Persia for good. And they were all in enemy nations or foreign nations that didn't serve their god. And so we as Christians, can't remove ourselves from our responsibility because we don't like our government. We can't act in hostility toward our government. We're to be a blessing. We're to support. We're to submit unless our government asks us to do something that is directly contrary to the commands of God. Scripture is also clear that while we are to submit and be supportive of and obedient to governmental authorities that we have to honor God, over government and culture, and that's all through scripture. In, in Exodus chapter 1, uh, is, is the Israelites are still in captivity in Egypt, and Pharaoh becomes concerned and, because their growth is explosive, and he gives the word to Shifra and Pua, who are the, the main two uh, midwives for the Egypt, or, uh, Hebrew women when they have children, and he gives the word to them that they're to kill any baby boy who is born. And they directly disobeyed the order of Pharaoh, who was over all the land. I mentioned a moment ago Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from from Daniel 3. They were told that they had to bow to an image of Nebuchadnezzar and worship, and they said, "We're, we're not doing it. They were thrown into the fiery furnace because of that. But they disobeyed a direct order from governing authority because God's word says you don't worship anyone but the Lord God. Daniel in Daniel 6, same thing. Darius, uh, 30-day decree passed so you could pray to no God, no one other than Darius. And what did Daniel do? He went back to his room and did what he'd always been doing and prayed to the living God. He wasn't going to put a world leader above God. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are hauled in before the Sanhedrin. They're told not to preach the gospel anymore. And they said, hey, You decide for yourselves whether you need to obey men or God, but it's for us. We're obeying God. We have to preach this truth that God has given us. We cannot stop. So there are times that we have to stand against government, but that's not really my main purpose today in bringing up our responsibility to government. You know, we're very fortunate today that we, as of today, have the opportunity to speak against ungodly or unbiblical direction in, in the government where we live. These examples that we just looked at in Scripture, uh, unlike them, we don't currently live in an oppressive dictatorship where you pay and, and risk your very life standing for God. Why? Because we live in a representative form of government. And because we live in a representative form of government, we have the opportunity to have significant influence, to have our say in our rule. We can change the, the, the correct the misdirection of government without a coup or without a revolt. Does our system have problems? Absolutely. We are governed by imperfect men and women who have rebelled against God. We've all rebelled against God. That's the source of all the difficulty that we face. It's our rebellion against God. It has nothing to do with government. But we are governed by imperfect men and women who have rebelled against God. God, and so yes, we have difficulty in our government, but in spite of the problems we have in our government, I doubt any of us would want to return to what things were like before the United States began this experiment. Not any of us would want to return to a monarchy or or, or a dictatorship, so until Jesus returns, Jesus is the only one who's going to rule perfectly. Until Jesus returns, this is the best system that we have. So what do we do? You know, there are several avenues of influence that, that we have, but there is one way that is available to every citizen that is easily accessible, and that is what? It's our ability to do what? To vote. Now, you have probably heard, as I have heard, some, uh, some Christians, some believers, uh, got one dear friend that is listening right now to the online message that will not vote. And I've heard reasons like this, well, we shouldn't be involved in politics. Or, well, you know, voting is useless because it's not really going to change anything. Or how about this one? This is a hard one to argue. Well, God is sovereign. God's going to do what God's going to do, so there's really no point, there's no need for our vote. So the question that, that we have to come to this morning, the question we have to look in the scripture is this, does God expect Christians to vote and to be engaged in the process in our government? Now, I'll just tell you right now, you won't find anywhere in this book a command to vote. That's not there. You won't find anywhere in this book uh, the name of the person you're supposed to vote for. Uh, let me ask you married people something. Did you find the name of your spouse in this book? Uh, Your spouse may have a biblical name, but did you find their name in this book that that's the person you're supposed to marry? No. Not everything in Scripture that we're going to face in life is going to be completely and totally spelled out, but there are definitely some principles that we need to look at. And the question this morning is, are there some commands from God? Is there scriptural direction that would lead us to conclude that we are to be involved in the process and that we can even bring honor to God by voting? I found at least three. Let's go back to Titus 3 in that first verse and look at Paul's admonition again. It says, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities. Now, Submit means to willingly put yourself under another. It doesn't mean, if if you choose to submit to human authority, it doesn't mean that you're inferior. It doesn't mean that you're incapable. It just means that for the good of all involved, you're choosing to defer to the leadership of another. You know, a great example of what government ought to look like is in Paul's admonition to married couples in Ephesians 5. This is a great illustration of how government should work. What does he say? He tells wives to submit to their husbands. Now, in our day and age, especially among the younger generation, women hate hearing the word submit. It's gotten a bad rap. But listen, the reason Paul says that wives are to submit to their husbands is there can't be two leaders, there can't be two heads. How would you make any progress or go any direction with two people going different directions? You ever seen two quarterbacks on a football team? That'd be something to watch, wouldn't it? No, Paul tells wives that they're to submit to their husbands. Does that mean the wife is incapable or inferior? Absolutely not. Does that mean she doesn't know how to lead a household? No. There are a lot of single women, whether they've they've been widowed or, or divorced, there are a lot of single women that have to lead a household. And under God, as they walk with him, they do a phenomenal job of it. Does it mean that since she's just supposed to submit to the leadership of her husband that she's not called on to do anything to advance or benefit the family? Absolutely not. She's part of the team. And the reason submission is an ugly word in our culture is too many men overlook the direction given to men. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How much did Christ love the church? He died for it. Gave himself sacrificially. Now, this is not a message about marriage, but that is a phenomenal picture of how government should work. We submit to the government, but our government authorities recognize that they are to serve us. However, even if that isn't happening, we're not alleviated from our responsibility. So back to government. When we submit to government, which, which in our case is a representative form of government, we submit to the processes that were put in place to establish our government and, and the processes that make it a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Now, it may not work perfectly, but it's founded on the premise that people will vote into office those whom they think are the best and the wisest to follow the law and and to lead the people. So I would submit to you this morning from Titus 3 and, and other places in scripture where we're told about being submitted to government that submission to our form of government speaks to our obligation to vote because that's the type of government that we have. Here's a second spiritual directive regarding our involvement in government. Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 3, and, and by the way, this phrase is repeated throughout the, New Te- or the Old Testament. God told his people what he expected of them was to do justice and to do righteousness. And I don't have to convince you that God also told his people that they were to love their neighbor, right? Right? You know that our our best means of bringing justice and righteousness and loving our neighbor, our best means of doing that on a broad scale is to vote for leaders who will lead us to do that on a national level. You know, we feel compelled, or I hope you do, I think we feel compelled to act when we see injustice, that we don't just look the other way or or walk on by. And voting does not relieve us of the responsibility of acting against injustice, but it is a great place to start you know that a little further on in in Jeremiah down in the 29th chapter God told his people to seek the welfare of the city where they lived now that seems a pretty simple concept we want to seek the welfare of the city where we live of the part of Arkansas we live in because as we uh, seek the welfare seek the good of our city of the place where we live that benefits us right but do you know that the Israelites, when God told them to seek the welfare of the city where they live, He wasn't referring to their home country. They were in captivity. They were in a foreign land when God told them to seek the welfare of the city. They were in a place that didn't worship the true and living God, and they were still told to seek the welfare of the city. Listen, if you grew up in America and you've been around here for three or four decades, you probably feel right now like you live in a foreign land, don't you? You probably feel like now, right now, to some degree, that you're living in, in, in a place of captivity in a godless nation. But God tells Israel in Jeremiah 29: in a land, when they're living in a land that didn't worship and follow the one true living God, listen to what He told them to do: build houses, settle down, plant gardens, marry and have families, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. You know, he's telling them, hey, wherever you are, get fully invested, get fully involved, and make it a better place. In fact, he told them in Jeremiah 29, if you you prosper your city, and I will prosper you. And I would say to us today, if we're unwilling to get involved on the most basic level of exercising our right to vote in our representative form of government, I don't think we're seeking the welfare of our land. I don't think we're helping to bring justice and, and loving our neighbor. Here's the third biblical directive I see in, in answering whether or not we should vote. Throughout Scripture, and, and Paul refers to this repeatedly, throughout Scripture, God who established government rulers and authorities makes it clear that those who are in government and leadership are responsible to Him and will be judged by Him. Now, hold that thought and follow me here. Those in leadership, are responsible before God and we've judged by God. We live in a representative democracy. That's that's a sobering responsibility. The New Testament believers didn't have the responsibility we have because they didn't elect their leaders. We have this incredible privilege that, that they did not enjoy, but with it comes a greater responsibility. Listen, God's given us a voice. We have a say in in who gets elected to lead and, and how laws are created and how justice is carried out. And in a representative democracy, we aren't simply the governed. We are the governing. Do you understand that? Because we elect those who govern, we're not just the governed, we're the governing. Our voices shape our government. Our voices determine how we are governed. Therefore, if I understand what, what Paul, what Scripture says about God holding leaders accountable, those who govern are accountable to God, and we are those who govern. I'm going to tell you, even if I knew that my vote had absolutely no hope of changing the godless trajectory we were on, I still could not fail to speak knowing I'm accountable to God. I cannot be silent. Well, so how do we decide for whom we should vote? The name is not in Scripture. God's not going to have a hand up here and write it in the plaster on the wall. Let me mention a few thoughts this morning in regard to our specific situation today, and let me deal first with the elephant in the room as far as this election's concerned. There are many believers who understand it's important to be a part of the process, it's important to vote, and you've heard them say this, I've heard it said a lot. I just can't vote for Donald Trump. I can't either. I'm not going to cast a vote for Donald Trump. His character is deplorable. His speech is unwholesome and degrading and unbecoming of a leader. His indiscretions are an embarrassment and an abomination to God. He's clearly not smart enough to watch what he says and how he behaves and to put a lid on it but he's not a politician. He's not an expert in cover-up, is he? Listen, I can't vote for either candidate because they are both flawed. Joe Biden's flaws maybe are not as obvious as Donald Trump's, but they are not fewer nor less offensive. I believe in this election and really... Honestly, in every recent election and probably going forward in every election to come, you and I are going to have to look past the character of the man. We're not to vote for the man. We're going to have to look past the person, look at the platform, and look at the the principles. What does the party stand for? What are they moving us toward as a nation, and, and what is their plan for governing? And the platform's of the parties are polar opposite 50 years ago you didn't see the extremes that we see today but today without question democrats and republicans parties are diametrically opposed politically theologically and morally their worldviews are 180 degrees apart and I don't have time here, and I don't consider myself skilled enough or an expert to fully explain the evolution of the parties and their platforms, but as I have read the platforms, and as as I, as you, have heard all the commentary from each party on their plan for governing, let me tell you what is abundantly clear. The Republican platform has a theistic approach. It demonstrates a belief in absolute truth On most points, it is biblically informed, and in most cases, it follows God-centered laws. The democratic platform is postmodern. What does that mean? Well, postmodernism declares there is no ultimate final truth. Postmodernism is all about moral relativism. What's right for you may not be right for me. What's right for me may not be right for you. You make up your own truth in every situation. Whatever you want to do, invent your own truth democratic platform is developed from human reason. It pursues man-centered freedom with no recognition and no sense of responsibility to an almighty God and his truth. Now, I'm sorry if you're a Democrat. This is not about being a Republican and a Democrat today. This is about two different directions on where our country should go. I'm sorry if that offends you, but I'm not speaking my opinion here. You can look it up, you can read it, you can tune in, you can hear it. That's the truth about both of those platforms. And As we vote, we have to consider the tenor of the platform and the principles and policies being put forth for our governance. Here's some of the issues that are going to be considered in this election, domestic issues, education and, and gun control and criminal justice, economic issues certainly, environmental issues, foreign policy, national security, healthcare issues, immigration issues, social issues like sexuality and marriage and abortion and religious liberty. Now I will tell you on most of those issues, among believers even, there's plenty of room for debate and discussion. You and I could have a conversation and have different ideas on the economy or healthcare or immigration and we could disagree. We could both be looking out for the welfare of our community. We could both be attempting to, to, to do justice, to treat everyone justly, both attempting to act biblically, but we could still disagree on those things. Now, do I have an opinion on those things? Absolutely, but I'm not going to take time to share my opinion here on those issues because on those issues I can't definitively say this is the biblical position a Christian must take. But there are two issues. And these two issues are why I am going to the ballot box. There are two issues about which Scripture is abundantly clear. You've been around here long. You know me, and what I'm about to say is exactly what you would expect to hear from me. It will not surprise you. I only hope that you have guessed what I'm about to say is because you know I hold the word of God above all else and I believe we have to obey it completely and fully no matter the cost. (laughs) Two issues on the ballot about which our Christian position is immovable, about which we cannot make any compromise. And this first issue is really even hard to articulate because it's just a a basket, no, I should say a trash can of deplorable ideas. And it is in setting aside God's design for men and women. Just this week, the Democratic candidate for president expressed that an eight-year-old should be allowed to decide what he or she wants their gender to be, and if the Democrats have their way, that would happen without any influence or involvement from parents or other concerned adults in that child's life. So, so it's hard to unpack all this, but l- let me remind you, God made man male and female. God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. God said, "A man should not lie with a man, and a woman should not lie with a woman." Here's the best way I can express this this issue from the platform: It's gay rights as a civil right. Now, let's be honest. People in our nation today have the right to live however they want to live. There are no restrictions on how people live. As long as they don't violate someone else's rights or hurt someone else, people can live however they want to live. And people who want to live in a homosexual relationship have the right to do that. No one in our nation legally tells people they can't have same-sex relationships. Which makes you wonder why we even have an issue. But the democratic platform wants to set aside the Bible and remove our freedom as Christians to obey the Bible. God's word is very clear on the issue of homosexual sin. Listen to me. When I speak that truth, that is not hateful speech. That is loving speech. I love people. That's why I'm in the role that I'm in. I love people people. And when you love people, that means sometimes speaking the truth even if it hurts to ensure that they have a right relationship with God now and for eternity. I don't hate homosexuals. I don't hate alcoholics and drug addicts. I don't hate fornicators and adulterers. I don't hate liars and cheats and gossips and thieves. My goodness, if I hated all those people and thought they shouldn't be in the church, I'd be preaching to an empty room right now. I wouldn't be here, right? No, I hate sin and its devastating consequences. Now, what do I mean when I say that the Democratic Party would set aside the Bible and remove our freedom as Christians to obey the Bible? Well, the Democratic platform is not just about allowing homosexuality. It's about flaunting it and about promoting it. It's about forcing me and you to facilitate it. If they have their way in leadership, we no longer will have the option to say, I can't be a part of that because I serve the living God. You know, we've already started having conversations around here about what happens if our country goes that direction. What happens if the the bakers and the florists and all those you see that for now, thank God the Supreme Court has protected them, what happens if that protection gets removed? You know, we'll have to have conversations about here about what to do about weddings. If they have their way, we will not be able to say, no, we're not going to marry a homosexual couple here. This is the house of God. We live by the word of God. We can't do that. I would expect that my speech would soon be censored once we go that direction. It's about not just gay rights as a civil right. It's about curtailing our religious freedom. Listen, anybody in their right legal mind would tell you that homosexuality neither needs nor deserves class protection. They are not held back and they are not disadvantaged. It's not the same thing as racism. In fact, as Ben Carson said, don't regard your sin as my skin. It's two different things. But they would tell us that we have to not only accept but to celebrate their sin. And by the way, let me say this today as well. My my biblical comments about homosexuality are not only out of a love for people, they're out of a love for country. J.D. Unwin was a cultural anthropologist who studied the rise and fall of the 80 greatest, greatest civilizations that have ever existed. You know we found out about their fall? Yeah, many of them were, were conquered by enemy nations. But before that happened, there was incredible decay within that made it easy to conquer those nations. And that decay primarily came from the destruction of the most basic unit of society, which is the family. And guess what caused the decay of the family? Rampant various forms of immorality. Second issue, abortion on demand. God's word is abundantly clear. There is absolute truth on this issue. We do not have the right to invent our own truth and we don't have the right to apply human reasoning. God is the author of life. He has not given us the right to destroy innocent life. Thou shalt not murder includes babies in the womb who are formed by the hand of God and made in the image of God. How dare us go destroy something God has made? I've, I've unpacked this truth from Scripture many times. I don't have time to go through the entire um, Scripture apologetics related to abortion. If you've not been around Geyer Springs long enough and have not heard me unpack that, you can call the office, you can send me an email, send me a text, and I will send you pages of scripture that defend this point. But let me just say at this point, it is clear where God stands and where we're called to stand on abortion now. The Democratic Party wants abortion on demand at any time, and they have made it very clear. It's, It's amazing to me how they don't hide anymore. They've made it very clear that they want the right to dispose of children even after birth. Think about this. The party that wants that right to destroy a child after that child is born wants to be in charge of your health care. The Republican Party is not perfect, but it is unquestionably pro-life. Does that mean every Republican, every member of the party is pro-life? No. Does that mean the Republicans have done just enough to be declared pro-life and they're rest on that laurel? No, there, there is still much work to be done. But their platform on this issue is clearly in line with the Word of God. When I go to the poll, this is what I'm going to be thinking about. You can't see it well. Some of you know exactly what it is. It is a model of about an 11 week old baby in the womb. I have several of these models, but this one means a great deal to me because I found this one when I was praying outside the local abortion mill. It had been dropped and stepped on and ground into the dirt. It's filthy. And it means a great deal to me because it's such a vivid picture of what's happened to babies in our land. And that's what I will have on my heart and my mind when I go to the poll. You know, if there was a candidate who had the exact domestic policy I want... There was a candidate who could promise to reduce government regulation, government spending. In fact, a candidate who promised they could cut government in a half and we would never have to pay income tax again. There's a candidate who had a perfect health care plan, a perfect immigration plan, who supported the Second Amendment, who guaranteed that they would not infringe on my religious freedom. If the candidate could do all those things but not stand for the sanctity of human life from conception to grave and not defend a biblical marriage, I would not vote for him or her. It's not about the economy, stupid. You know, we love to... uh, during difficult times in our nation, our world, we love to quote Second Chronicles 7.14, don't we? My people who are called by my name will do what? Humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their sin and forgive their land. Listen, I don't think we can say we've turned from our wicked ways when we're silent about what's happening because our government is misdirected. You can't say you've turned. Listen, you you can't say, well, that's not me. I, I agree scripturally. I agree with everything you said about the homosexual agenda. I agree that, that abortion is against God. It's sinful. I, I agree with all that. But I don't do any of those things, so that's not me. No. Go to Nehemiah. When Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem, God had called him back to rebuild the devastation in that land that did not occur on his watch. Nehemiah was not even born when the Israelites were carried off into captivity and Jerusalem was destroyed, but he goes back and he takes ownership and look at his prayer in chapter 1. He says to God, forgive me for the sins of my fathers and my sins. We own it. We're citizens in this land. We own the sin of abortion. We own the sin of homosexuality. We own it. We can't say, oh God, please come heal our land because we haven't turned from our wickedness unless we're speaking out about it and against it.